Before I get into the word this morning, church, I just want to tell you, I've done this for a while now, and anytime we get together and worship the Lord, it's special. Anytime we open the word of God, it's special, but I don't know. I think God's doing something this morning. I think there's a special anointing in this place today. I don't know what God wants to do, and what God wants to do with you is between you and him. I can't tell you what he wants to do with you. I know he wants to save you, and I know he wants to use you. I know he wants to rescue you and transform you. And I know he wants to grow us. And truly, when it comes to God's will for your life, that's kind of one of those things that don't all of us struggle with that just a little bit? I mean, if I were to ask you this morning, I know that some of you in the room today, you may not be a Christian. You may be visiting. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you've just come into this place because you heard it was the place to be. Whatever reason you're here this morning... This may be new to you, so some of this language may be a little bit foreign, but for some of us who have followed the Lord for a while now, even after years of being a Christian, don't we sometimes look around and wonder if we're really living out God's will for our life? Don't you wonder, like, okay, is this job and is this... Don't question your spouse. That's who God's got for you. We're not even going to question that this morning. But is this job, is this school, is this church, is this community, is this place, is this way that I'm living my life, is this truly God's will for me, or is it possible that somewhere along the way I missed a turn that I should have taken in life, and now I've ended up here and I'm on plan B or C? I don't know. We wonder about that sometimes. And when it comes to praying, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, when it comes to prayer, very often when we pray... My priority in prayer is to make sure that I fill God in on what's going on in my life. You know what I'm talking about? I get ready to pray, and I'm like, all right, God, I'm here to pray. Let me share with you what I'm struggling with. God, I want you to heal our pawpaw this morning. God, uh, we're getting ready to start Life Academy in a couple weeks, and my wife is leading this thing, and she's stressed out and exhausted. God, I want you to use her and strengthen her. God, I want to pray for Pastor Brian's family this morning. God, I want to pray for the new believer that you would strengthen them and comfort them and lead them. God, I've got all these things going on in my life, and God, truly my situation, my job, my family, there's things going on there that I'm concerned about. And usually when we pray, doesn't it sort of sound like that? We, we tend to bring all of our things to God. And that's a good thing. Don't hear me say today that you should take your list and throw it away because God's not interested because the word tells us that we are to cast all of our anxieties onto God because he cares for us. There is a time and place in prayer where God wants to hear from you everything that's on your mind and in your heart. Truly, I believe that one of the struggles of my generation is anxiety. We, we talk about it frequently. We talk about it consistently. Many of my generation are anxious. It's not something you heard as much about in previous generations, but my generation, we, we use this idea that we are anxious. We have anxiety, and truly I wonder if it's a symptom of the fact that my generation, by and large, hasn't learned to cast our anxiety onto him, and we don't know what to do with it. There's a time and place in prayer that we bring everything on our heart to God, and there is nothing too small for him. There is nothing that he's going to tell you, Dave, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to hear what you got to say about that. There's nothing too small. But there's also a sense that when we pray, the way we pray can be a bit of a limiting factor. 
the way that we pray can sort of put an emphasis on what I want and what I've got going on, and it can be to the detriment of what God truly wants. You see, when we come to pray, prayer is less about changing God's mind about my circumstances, and it's more about God changing my mind about my circumstances. You with me? See, for years as a Christian, and I've been preaching now for about 10 years, and I love to preach. Give me a microphone, I'll preach. I love to do it longer than I should. It's, it's kind of my thing. But what prayer has been one of the things that in my life, up until the last year or so where God has really begun to grow me, prayer has been one of those areas where I've always struggled. I didn't do it enough, and when I would do it, it just sort of felt like I was talking to the ceiling. And the words would bounce back down. Any Christians in the room ever struggle with prayer? Like you know it's an important part of the Christian life. And all of the spiritual giants that we hear from, the Billy Grahams of the world, we hear them. They talk about the hours they spend in prayer. And we go to our Bible and we see that even Jesus himself, being God in the flesh, even he prioritized prayer. And it's like, well, if Jesus prayed, surely it should be a priority for me because I don't know anything like what Jesus knew. And yet in my life, there seems to be this limiting factor in prayer that I, I struggle to even want to do it. And when I do it, I walk away from it thinking, that's it. That's all there is to prayer. I just, I just close my eyes and start talking to God, and that's, that's all there is. And I believe that I had a breakthrough in my prayer life when I came to understand that prayer is not about me changing God's mind, but it's about God changing mine. Amen. And it's about God changing me. And it's about God preparing me. It's about God being in relationship with me and strengthening me and giving me what I need for the day. And even the disciples who followed Jesus, when they saw Jesus pray, and these disciples, make no mistake, they weren't perfect people, but they grew up in the Jewish community. They knew to pray. They knew to pray. They knew when to pray. They knew how to pray. They had likely been taught how to pray. But yet when they saw Jesus pray, they said, Jesus, you've got to teach us how to pray because that's different than how we pray. And Jesus didn't simply tell them, you know what, it doesn't matter how you pray. You just close your eyes, you talk to God, you tell God whatever's on your mind. Jesus could have easily made it simple for us. But Jesus instead gave them a framework in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6. They look very similar. We're going to be in Matthew 6 today and we're going to learn one of the elements that Jesus prioritized in prayer. We've spent the last several weeks, we're going to start in Matthew 6, 9 if you want to turn there. We've spent the last several weeks in a series called Summer of Prayer. We are wanting to dedicate this summer to getting our prayer life right. If we're going to be followers of Christ, this is an element of the Christian life that you and I need to get right. We need to do this Jesus' way. We need to learn how Jesus wants us to pray. And Jesus gave us a framework. He gave us a foundation. He gave us sort of a picture of what prayer should look like. And it sounds like this. Starting in Matthew 6, 9, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We start our prayer with relationship. When Jesus talked about his father, he wasn't talking about a distant father, an uncaring father. He wasn't talking about a frustrated disciplinarian who was waiting for us to mess up so he could punish us. He was talking about a father who loved us and reached out to us, who sent his son to us so that we could be part of his family. He was talking about a father who cares for us in an intimate and personal way. Jesus doesn't just love his church, he loves you. And God didn't just send Jesus into the world for the world. He sent Jesus into the world for me and for you. 
There's a personal aspect to prayer. And if you miss that, it will sometimes feel like you're praying to a cosmic deity out there somewhere who doesn't know you. Jesus said, start your prayer with this. God knows you and loves you and wants to hear from you. You get to spend time with Almighty God who bends his ear to listen to you. We cannot overstate the importance of that. That we get to break into the throne room of God with all the angels surrounding him, hiding their face from him because of his holiness, and yet we get to jump up on the throne with him and talk to him like he's our dad. So start your prayer with that, with that relationship, with that intimacy. Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. There should be an element to worship in our prayer, church. If you kick off your prayers by saying, God, here I am, here's what I need today, you're missing the element that God wants to connect with you through worship. You say, well, that's awful selfish of God to want me to start my prayer off by worshiping him. Actually, the great thing about worship is that when you praise and worship God for who he is, that's fulfilling to you because it's what you were created to do. It's not just good for God, it's good for me and it's good for you. You start your prayer off with some worship and you'll feel your attitude shift and change. Because now you're speaking God's language. You're speaking the truth of who he is. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then he shifts in verse 10 to his priorities for the world. He says, when you pray, don't start out with your list. There's going to be a time that you give your list to God. But first, you worship, and then you pray for his kingdom to come. And this is what we talked about last week. It's this idea that God's priority in the world is not necessarily my priorities in the world. You see, if you asked me what I think the world needs to get fixed, I could give you a list of about ten things that if these things would happen in the world, everything would be better and everything would be all right. And I bet you've got a list too. I bet all of us do. But truly, God's list doesn't look exactly like our list. And when we bring our list to God and we skip his kingdom, we're missing the important aspect that God created us to not just be in relationship with him as a father, but we are also subjects in his kingdom. We are, we are ambassadors of his kingdom. And when we pray, I have to remind myself, okay, Jesus, okay, God, I've got all this stuff in my life that I'm concerned about, that I'm worried about, that I'm anxious for. And God, I, I want you to act in these areas, but let me remind myself. I think this is as much for me and for you as it is for God to hear. But I've got to remind myself in prayer, God, it's not my kingdom. It's your kingdom. When I get stressed... And let me just give you this real quick. When you get stressed out about politics and about all the chaos in the world, and you think to yourself, man, what a mess. This is never going to get fixed. Just remember, this world and this country is not your primary citizenship. God does not hold you accountable for the health of our country. God has sent you into this place as an ambassador of his kingdom. Man, when I scroll Twitter and I watch the news, i got to remind myself of that. I'm not here to fix America. I'm here to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God. Easy to forget. you got anxiety and you got worry about all these things. When you go in to pray, remind yourself of that before you start praying. God, this, oh, I'm so concerned about everything happening. But God, it's your kingdom, not mine. It's your kingdom, not mine. We are here today, God, not to talk about my kingdom and my world and my wishes and my fears and my concerns. God, primarily, it's your kingdom come in this world, whatever that looks like. And church, let me tell you, usually God's kingdom comes into the world not through healthy governments, but through persecution. That's usually how the kingdom of God comes. 
So if you're praying that God's kingdom would come, often that means you've got to be okay with chaos in the world. Because that's usually where God's kingdom grows and thrives. They almost go hand in hand. Doesn't mean that we want the world to collapse around us. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have thoughts and opinions or that we should disengage. It simply means those things aren't primary, they're secondary. God's kingdom is primary. We pray that his kingdom would come. And then today we're going to hone in on this right here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray God's will in our prayers, we are prioritizing God's desires over mine. God's will must take priority in our prayers. Case in point, when we pray for Papa today, when we pray for Clarence, we're not going to pray like this. God, whatever your will is, just do it. We're going to pray for healing. You know why? Because God tells us that we should pray for what we want that we should ask God to heal. In fact, the Bible is very specific. When somebody has a need or when somebody is sick, the elders of the church get together and the people of God get together and we pray and we boldly approach the throne and say, God, here's what we want to see happen. We want to see him healed. But we also pray the same way Jesus prayed in John 17. The night before Jesus was crucified, he was scared of what was about to happen. He was worried and concerned about what he had to face the next day as he was going to hang on that cross and be separated from God. And he prayed in John 17, God, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, God, if you can do this a different way, please do it a different way. But then he said, but it's not my will, it's your will that needs to be done. And when we pray... That's how we pray God's will. God's will must take priority in prayer. But church, let's be honest for a second. Understanding God's will is really difficult. It's hard to often know exactly what God wants. Guys in the room, let's be honest. You don't know what your wife wants. You don't know. You think you know. And then when you give her what you think she wants, she tells you that's not what she wanted. She doesn't want solutions. I think I know what my wife wants after 13 years. She wants me to take my AirPods out of my ears and listen to her. I think that's what she wants. It took me almost 14 years to figure it out, but I think I figured it out. When I start talking and I try to solve all the problems, then I've gone too far. I've got to back up and say, no, nope, I'm just here to listen. I think I figured it out. It's difficult to know, often in our lives, what God wants. In some senses. And the sense in where I think it's difficult is this. The will can be a difficult thing. Let me give you an example. How many of you would love, how many of you got children? Raise your hand, you got children. Even if they're grown, you got kids. All right. How many of you want to see your kids hurt? Raise your hand. We got a cop in the room, so just be aware, all right? Nobody wants to see their kids hurt. How many of you want your kids to go through struggles and difficulties? None of you. My dad does because he knows where I'm going with this question. He's got the answers to the test. How many of you want your kids to have to fight and claw for everything they've got? None of us. All right, parents, how many of you want your kids to grow up and have good moral character? All right, we all understand that good moral character generally comes from having to struggle and fight and go through difficulty, right? So even when it comes to your own will for your own children, let's be honest, there are two sides of the coin. On one, on one hand, for my four children, I wish they never had to hurt. I wish they never had to go through difficulty. It's my desire that their life would be easy and peaceful because that's what I want for them. 
But on the other hand, I know the reality that because they live in a fallen world and because they are fallen people, it is necessary that they go through some struggles. And if they go through life with no struggles and with no difficulties and everything is easy, they're going to grow up to be entitled selfish people. And that is not my will for them. So you understand that even when we talk about the will, even our own will has two sides of the coin, if you will. Even our own will has a duality to it, where in one sense we want one thing, but in another sense we want something that seems conflicting. And when we go to the Bible and we look at God's will, it can be often difficult to understand what God wants because God, in an infinitely greater sense than us, has a will that is difficult for us to understand because he doesn't think like us. In fact, Isaiah 55 says his ways aren't our ways and his thoughts aren't our thoughts. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't will like us. He doesn't feel like we do. He created us in his image to be made in his likeness. But truly, church, it's difficult for us to get inside the mind of God. Do we agree? I hope you do because if you try to make God simple like us, what we run into is that he's not big enough to handle the world's issues. And we have to constantly be letting him off the hook. Understanding God's will can be tricky, but the good news is the Word of God gives us what we need to know. We must simply read it and learn it. Understanding God's will is so important because my understanding of God's will is going to determine my success in prayer. Let me give you an example. For years I struggled with prayer, and here was my primary reason that I didn't pray. And some of y'all are going to judge me when I say this, but just withhold your judgment for a few minutes, all right? My mind used to go something like this. I know God's in control. We agree God's in control. God is totally in control. He, the Bible calls that sovereign. It's his sovereign rule. It is, it's his control over his universe. God is in control. If you believe God is not in control, there's really no need to pray to him because he can't do anything about it anyway. God's in control. But I used to take that idea that, okay, God's in control. So if I go to God with my circumstances and I say, God, here's what I want you to do in my circumstances, knowing full well God has already decided what he's going to do in my circumstances because God is in control, what's the point of praying? I'm not going to change his mind. And that was just like, that was, the, that was like the, the, the mountain that I could not get around when it came to prayer. I would pray, but I would sit there in the back of my mind thinking, God, I know you hear me, but I'm not going to change your mind. God, you know what you're going to do. And I wasn't completely wrong, but I was wrong. I wasn't completely wrong, but I was wrong. And let me explain to you why. God's will is not simply that he has decreed everything that's going to happen, and now he's sitting back and just waiting for it to unfold in a detached and impersonal way. In fact, if you read the Bible, I think that we can take God's will, and in the same way that we could recognize sort of the duality of our own will, we can look at God's will, and we can see throughout the Bible that there are areas of his will that are nuanced. Let me give you an example. There is an element of God's will that we're going to call decree. You all know what a decree is? When a king would send out a decree in a kingdom, that decree was basically a statement of how things are going to be. He would decree a new tax. He would decree a law change. He would decree a new plan. And it would be sent out into the kingdom, and it wasn't up for debate. It wasn't going to be voted on by a committee. It wasn't going to be discussed amongst all the people so that they could come to a consensus. It wasn't a democratic process. It was simply the king making a decree. And it was set in stone. It was law until he changed his mind. And God is a king who never changes his mind. So there's a very real sense, church, 
that God's will of decree, which we can simply define as God's control over all things, there is a sense in which God has willed all things. Now, I know where your mind's going. I know where your mind's going because you're thinking, no, wait a minute. If that's true, then God must be responsible for all the bad things in the world. If that's true, then God must be responsible for all the negativity. If that's true, then God must be responsible for sin. Far be that from the truth. You see, God recognizes what we recognize for our own children. God understands and has made the decision to leave us in a sinful and fallen world. You still with me? I know we're talking concepts here for just a second, and it's going to get personal, and it's going to get logical, and it's going to get applicable. But for a moment, we need to consider this. Because some people, uncomfortable with the idea of God being in control, we let God off the hook by saying, okay, well, God's in control, but he's not in control of the bad stuff. He's only in control of the good stuff. And that way we can sort of sleep better at night because we think, okay, I don't even have to consider the fact that when a bad thing happens that God is still in control. So we just say, well, when something bad happens, God had nothing to do with that. God couldn't have stopped it even if he wanted to. Well, the problem with that is that if that's true, then God, the king, has lost control of his kingdom. And he is now subject to the whims of a sinful and fallen world. And if that's true, he has ceased to become God. He is no longer God. The more important reason that's a problem is that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And if that's true, even when we don't understand what he's doing, it's better that he be in control than I be in control. For me to assume that I know better than him is for me to step outside of my place as a man. Thirdly, the Bible is clear about this. Look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is a situation. Joseph was a young man. He had been sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers had committed an atrocious sin. They had literally committed the sin of murder and deception. They sold their brother into slavery. They faked his death to his own father. And yet, here we are decades later. Joseph, who had been sold into slavery, is now the prince of Egypt. And he stands before his brothers who need him to give them food so that they can survive. And listen to what Joseph said to him. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it. You see that word? It doesn't say God used it. It doesn't say God turned it. It says God intended it. For good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, when we think of God being in control, and then we get uncomfortable because sometimes we see circumstances that we can't imagine an all-powerful God being involved in, we have to remember that when we see the negative happen, that's not the end of the story. And God often takes some of the most painful and difficult circumstances and he uses them and he intends them for good to come out of them that never could have happened otherwise. If you want another case of how God has done this, consider the fact that the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus' death was no accident. It was God's will and it was his hand and it was his plan that Jesus would be turned over and betrayed by one of his closest friends and that he would be led up and he would be unlawfully crucified. And God did that with his own son. You say, well, how could God be responsible for something so terrible? He did that because he loves you and he wanted to make a way for you to be in his kingdom. You see, God has this habit of taking the bad things in our life and using them and turning them and intending them for good. It says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God uses these things. God is in control. And church, when things go bad, God is still in control, which means that you and I can sleep at night. 
You and I can sleep at night. We don't have to be scared of what's happening out there. And we don't have to be scared of what's happening in here. And I don't have to be scared of what's happening in here because God is in control. God's will of decree, in a very real sense, means that what God wills will come to pass. He is in control. But when Jesus is teaching us to pray, and he says that we should pray that God's kingdom should come and his will should be done on earth as it is in heaven, I don't believe that he is saying that when we pray, we should pray, God, I pray that your sovereign will of decree would come to pass because that's sort of already going to happen anyway. You with me? Like in heaven, when God says something should be done, when God makes a decree, a decree gets done. We agree with that? In heaven, where there's no sin, it gets done. But I would argue the Bible teaches that truly what God decrees on earth to get done will get done. There's nothing on earth that's going to stop God's plan. But that does not let us off the hook for responsibility. And that does not lessen the amount of responsibility that you and I as people have in God's kingdom. Because when we go to the word of God and we interpret God's will through the scripture, which is how we should understand God's will, we understand that God also has a very clear will of desire, which is literally just obedience to God's commands. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, that there's going to be a day when all people you and I included, when we die, or when Jesus comes back, however that looks, all of us are going to stand before God, and we're going to have to give an account to what we did with our lives. The decision that we made about Jesus. He lived, died, he rose again. We've got the evidence. 66 books of the Bible prove it. You may not agree, but it's true. We have the evidence that Jesus lived, died, rose again. He was the righteous son of God. We have all the evidence we need, and the fact that you're in church this morning means you've got more than enough evidence to follow Jesus. And one day, you're going to have to stand before God and give an account to what you did with what you knew, what you were told with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it says in Matthew 7, there's going to be a lot of people on that day that are going to look at Jesus, and they're going to call him Lord. They're going to say, Lord, Lord. And they're going to talk about all the good things they did. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? God, didn't we preach? Didn't we evangelize? Didn't we do all these good things? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. He's going to say that those who say, Lord, Lord, many of them will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So now we're talking about God's will, and we go, wait a minute. I thought God's will was set in stone, and everything's going to happen. When God makes a decree, it happens. But God has given us a clear set of commands in Scripture that we are responsible and accountable to follow. And when we stand before God... God is not going to let us off the hook when we say, well, God, you're in control of everything, so my sinful, evil life, you're, just, you're responsible for that. You can say, no, you're responsible for that. Because you knew the truth, and you were given God's command. You were given 66 books of Scripture called the Bible. You were given Eastland Life Church on 3rd Street that preached the truth to you. You knew the truth that there were things I wanted you to do in this life, and you refused to do them, and instead you chose a life of sin. And because you did not do what I said to do, because you didn't do the will of the Father, you have no place in my kingdom. You see, there's an element to God's will where you and I are very accountable to say yes or no and to follow through with it. God's will of desire means that we must be obedient. In 1 John 2, John says it this way, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And to get really clear, in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, 
Paul says it this way. He says, if you want to know what the will of God for your life is, here it is. It's your sanctification, that you be cleaned up and made into the image of Jesus Christ, that you would continue to turn away from your sin and be obedient. You see, church, what I'm saying to you this morning is that when we pray, and we pray that God's kingdom would come, we are prioritizing his kingdom over my kingdom. But then when I pray, God, your will be done, I am prioritizing my obedience over my circumstances. See, the difference between heaven and earth is not God's sovereignty, it's my obedience. And prioritizing God's will means prioritizing my obedience over my circumstances. Prioritizing my obedience over my circumstances. When we pray, here's what I want you to get this morning. When we pray, it is right to come before God and say, God, here is what I'm dealing with. Here is what I'm struggling with. And we take these things to him. And we get specific what we want to see God do. It's right to do that. It's biblical to do that. We do it alone and we do it in the context of the church. We do it together. We pray for healing. We pray for revival. We, we pray for growth. We pray for blessing. We pray for new believers. We, play, we pray for believers who have left the church. We pray for them to come back. We pray for believers who are slipping. We pray for strong believers that God would continue to strengthen them. We pray very specific things. I hope you have a list of things you're praying about. If you don't, you should get more specific with God. But there's a danger of so focusing prayer on my list and misunderstanding God's will in my prayer that this can happen. I've already shared with you my struggle where, okay, I believe God's in control, so there's no point in me praying at all, right? I already shared with you that danger. Maybe you fall into that camp and you need to repent like I did and learn that, hey, God is looking for my obedience in life. He's looking for action on my part. But there's also another thing that I see happen in the church, and I think it relates to this. I want to share it with you. And maybe you've been through this before. There's a situation in your life. Maybe it's something that happened in your past, and you can't get past your past. And you pray about your past, and you pray that God would release you from it, heal you from it, strengthen you and let you move on. But it just sticks with you. And it's like you can't get over it, you can't move past it, you're stuck. And you can't for the life of you understand why God is still letting this be such a problem in your life. Like why am I still stuck on this thing that happened? God, why don't you just take the pain of this thing away from me? God, I don't understand what you're doing with this. Maybe... It's something on the outside. Maybe there's a situation in your life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a family member or a friend. And there's a very specific situation that you've prayed for for a long time. Maybe you prayed in the past for a healing to happen. And you were sure that it was going to happen, and it didn't. And you prayed in faith, and you believed, and you did exactly what the Bible said, and you were sure this is what God was going to do, and he didn't. Or perhaps you've been praying about something for a long time and it looks like God isn't moving at all. Maybe you prayed for something and you were so sure and the opposite happened. And church, can't we be honest and say that when that happens, it's really hard to want to keep going back and praying again. It's like, what's the point? I keep praying and God's not, it's like he's not acting, he's not hearing me. But when we pray God's will in our prayers, we must understand that God's will, often in our circumstances, 
doesn't look how we want it to look because God is doing things in us through the circumstances that we don't see yet. And when I pray God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done, if I pray, God, I want you to heal Papa, and I pray and I believe and I have faith, and God chooses to heal him, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I do not get to take credit for that healing. All right? If I pray God's healing and God chooses not to heal, I don't get to say, God, you let me down. Because you told me to pray, and I prayed, and you told me to have faith, and I had faith, and you didn't heal. And man, that's a hard thing to deal with. And many people have walked away from prayer, and others have even walked away from a close relationship with Jesus because they feel as if somehow they have been let down by the will of God that was, that was somehow against them. But the truth is, in our circumstances that we pray for, when we pray that God's will be done, we are just as much praying that God would do His will in me and that I can be obedient in the circumstance as much as I'm praying that God fix my circumstance. Do you understand the distinction? you understand the difference? This is really important. Let me give you an example so maybe I can flesh this out and I'll be done. It's a personal example. Some of you have heard this. Some of you have not. My dad's in the room this morning, so I know this will be personal to him. I know he doesn't mind me sharing this story. When I was a kid, I was about Toby's age, my oldest son, he's 11. I was a little younger than him when my parents divorced. My mother and my biological father, he's not here with us this morning, they divorced. He was an alcoholic, he had an alcohol problem. I didn't see him for like 10 years of my life. He, just, he was completely gone, and it was really hard for me as a kid. And as a kid growing up in the church and in a Christian school, I used to pray, God, why would you let that happen to me? I didn't understand why God would let that happen. Other kids had their families, why didn't I have mine together? Well, not long after, God sent... Mac into my life, and he was a perfect father for me. Not perfect, but he was real good. He adopted me. I took his last name. I called him dad. He was my ball coach. He was my best friend. He was there all through my teenage years. I could not have had a better father. And I looked at my circumstances, and I thought to myself, okay, I get God's will now. I understand what God was doing. I looked at my circumstances. I said, okay, God, I get it. The bad thing had to happen with my father so you could bring Mac into my life. And all of a sudden, God's will made sense to me. You ever have those moments where you look back and you say, God, I see what you were doing. God, I see how you put all that together and all that pain and all that that I went through and that thing that I prayed for that, God, you didn't fix. At the moment, it was painful, but now I look at it and I see, God, you were doing this big thing that I couldn't even fathom. And it all made sense to me as a kid. And it was great until I turned 18 and there was a lot of trouble in the family, and he left our home. And I didn't see Mac for about 10 years, 10, 11 years, maybe longer. I don't remember the math exactly. Now, when that happened, all of a sudden, my conception of God's will, his good will for me went right out the window because now it's like, well, wait a minute, God. Now you've let this happen twice. Now we've had to move out of our house. We've got all this chaos. There's all this financial trouble. I'm hurting. I miss my dad. My sisters are hurting. They're young. Our family's in shambles. God, why would you let this happen? And there was no answer on the horizon this time. There wasn't anybody else to show up and fix it. So now, as a young man, I'm looking at God going, wait a minute, God. I prayed, you said yes, but then you took that away from me? Like, God, that, that's painful. That hurt. And I got so mad at God that I just ran away from faith altogether. I quit going to church. I was going to college. I wasn't partying or anything, but I was just sort of floating through life, just mad at God. And God sent some men into my life, and they're still in my life to this day. One of them is very close to me. And he sat me down one day with the Bible, 
And he said, Blake, I want you to read Romans 8, 28. And it said, all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And it, it lit up my mind because for the first time, I understood that God's will for me is not always going to be obvious and apparent in my circumstances. Does that make sense? That God's will and God's love for me and God's using me and God's being in relationship with me doesn't depend on me understanding what God is doing in my circumstances. So I gave my life to Jesus. I became a Christian for the first time in my life. And God completely transformed me and changed me. He introduced me to my wife. We got married, had children, started coming to this church. God plugged me in here. And for the next 12 or so years, my life was focused purely on obedience to God. I was doing the best I could, imperfect as it was, to be obedient to God. But the truth was, and my wife is here today, she can attest to this, I still didn't really know what God was doing with Mac and my father. They were out there somewhere, but I had sort of learned to live life without them and had focused my life on obedience to God. But something began to happen in my mid to late 20s where... My obedience to God, separate from my circumstances, began to work in reverse where when they came back into my life, my obedience to God began to bleed over into their lives and God saved both of them. And he brought them both back into my life. And now they get to be a part of my children's life and my wife's life and we get to do this life together as a family and there's no animosity and there's no hatred and there's no pain. And I know that not everybody gets the fairy tale ending like what I feel like I've gotten today. And I'm not promising you that if you'll just simply pray and be obedient and you'll prioritize God's will over yours, I'm not telling you that your situation will get fixed just like that. What I'm telling you is that as you focus less on what God is doing on the outside and begin to prioritize in prayer what God is doing on the inside, you may be surprised at the level to which God will begin to use you to affect these circumstances that you're so burdened about. Is that making sense? When we pray God's will be done. We're praying, God, I know there's all this going on. And I'm going to bring that to your throne today, but God, I can't control this, but I can control me and what I choose to do. And God, today I choose obedience. I choose obedience to your word. Obedience to God's expressed will, it's my last point, obedience to God's expressed will, church, will provide insight into my circumstances. Here's good news for you today if you're struggling. Here's good news for you today if you've got things going on in your life and you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing and I don't understand it and God, I'm confused and I feel like we're not close in relationship. Here's why I want to encourage you today. That story that I just told you, that's not simply anecdotal. That's not just one story from one man. Look at what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, and he says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Church, that's our obedience to God. Do you see it? Paul says, I urge you, church, be obedient to what God has told you to do. Don't worry about the secret things that God hasn't revealed to you yet. You focus on what God has told you to do clearly in his word. 
Become a Christian. Submit your life to Jesus Christ's lordship. Follow Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Plug into a local church. Make your life about his kingdom and not yours. Become a giver. Become a worshiper. Become a servant in God's kingdom. You be obedient. Lay your life on the altar of God's kingdom. But look what happens in verse 2. He says, Don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And look what happens when we do this. Paul is saying that when we prioritize our obedience and we begin to pray and focus on my obedience, those things I can control, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. Do you see it? This is the secret to the Christian life. We have it backwards. Here's how we operate. We say this, God, when all the chaos settles down, then I'll get obedient. God, if you can get me through this season of craziness, if you can get me through this illness, if you can get me through this divorce, if you can get me through school, if you can get me a good job where I can be at church every weekend and on Wednesday night, God, if you will fix my circumstances so that I'm comfortable, then I will focus my life on being obedient to you. And when God doesn't fix our circumstances, we float for years and years through life going, God, I wish I could be obedient. I wish I could be more plugged into the kingdom, but you still haven't fixed my circumstances. When God is saying, hey, it actually works in reverse. You become obedient where you are. And when you focus in on your obedience, you're going to begin to discern what God is doing over here in your circumstances. You become obedient, and you draw near to God, and you're going to begin to get some insight and going, okay, God, I see what you're doing here. See, the breakthrough in my life happened with my father when I understood, God, I can't fix that, and I can't live the rest of my life in the pain of that. So, God, i got to seek you, and i got to be obedient to you. And then a few years later, when they showed up, I thought, oh my goodness, I've got something to give to them. I've got life they don't have. My obedience has become an instrument that God can use in their life. Can you imagine if I had stayed stuck in the pain of my circumstances, and then they came back around, and I did what many people do, which is to say, okay, I want answers. I want my circumstances fixed. I couldn't fix that. Only God could fix that. But he had to fix me before he fixed that. You with me? You see, most of us are so worried about what's going on out there, we have lost focus on what God wants to do in here. And that's where you're responsible today. What does God want to do with me? What does God want to do in you? What is your next step of obedience? 